Friends, will you pray with me? God, who is our beginning and our end, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you. Amen. I've been thinking this week about a colleague of mine in the United Church of Christ. He lives in California. And his hobby is writing icons, religious icons, not the ones on computer screens. Icons of Christ and other saints. Now, if you know anything about congregational history, you might recognize the irony in this pastor having this hobby. Congregationalists trace our roots back to Puritans, and Puritans had some very strong feelings about icons. Mostly feelings about destroying them because they considered them idolatrous. Yeah, it was a whole thing uh, with a lot of bloodshed and destruction of property along the way, unfortunately. For a long time, Congregationalist sanctuaries were notable for their lack of artwork. Plain white columns, clear glass windows, no adornment or images that could possibly be misconstrued as idolatrous. But these days, lots of Protestants have rediscovered the value of the visual arts in depicting stories from the Bible and in expressing our faith. You can see right here in our sanctuary that Congregationalists have mellowed out about this considerably over the last few centuries. It actually gives me a fair bit of hope that today's violent religious extremists may someday unwittingly give birth to much more broad-minded, easygoing, inclusive movements. But that's a sidebar. I was thinking about icons and this colleague this week because I love traditional icons of John the Baptist. And this is the second week in a row that we've had John the Baptist as a major character in our gospel lesson. See, icons of John the Baptist, they have all the traditional elements, you know, the bold outlines, the golden halo, the formal postures and poses with symbolic props. But because this is John the Baptist and he lived in the desert, there's also always this array of scraggly little hairs sticking out around his head, and he's wearing camel clothes that look scratchy, and it's just a really fascinating juxtaposition of the beautiful, holy, and the kind of scraggly, rough-edged John. In these icons, John the Baptist is usually also pointing either to a cross that he's holding or away from himself toward the implied presence of Christ. Because just like in our passage this morning, John the Baptist consistently redirects attention away from himself to Jesus. It's for this reason that a lot of preachers identify with John the Baptist. Any good preacher knows that we've missed the mark if people are paying more attention to us than they are to Jesus. In today's gospel lesson, we see a pair of Jesus's, a pair of John's followers approach Jesus for the first time. And Jesus asks them, what are you looking for? Not who are you looking for? They may have had an answer for that one. But what? What are you looking for? 
And the disciples don't seem to have an answer. They kind of fumblingly say, well, Rabbi, where are you staying these days? And they do succeed in inviting themselves over to his house, where they spend the rest of the afternoon talking. We learn that one of them is Andrew, and he goes to grab his brother Simon, who Jesus almost immediately renames Peter. And we discover that this is the beginning of that core group of disciples, of apostles that follow Jesus. What are you looking for? This story depicts a dynamic that I think is a really common one in the human quest for spiritual direction or purpose. We know we're looking for something, but we're not sure what it is. And when we begin looking, often the first thing we notice is a charismatic individual. And so spiritually hungry people are drawn to John the Baptist, to Jesus, to Muhammad, to gurus of all ages, to preachers or orators, to authors, radio hosts, political pundits, activists. We may not always know what we are looking for, but often we find a particular person who we believe will help us find it. In this case, in the Gospels, we know that Andrew and Peter ended up following Jesus for years and then became leaders in the early church. It feels safe to assume that they found what they were looking for. But what was it? Since the question is posed at the beginning of the book of John, I went looking for the answer in the Gospel of John as well. Now, like all four of the Gospels, John spends a couple of chapters near the end describing Jesus' arrest and death, and then a couple more chapters describing resurrection appearances. But before that, John does something unique that none of the other Gospels do. While most of the Gospels depict the night before Jesus' arrest, in just a few paragraphs talking about the Last Supper, John spends five chapters describing that evening, from chapter 13 all the way through chapter 17. It's like time slows down, and we get the whole evening in slow motion. And it's in this drawn-out description of an evening that I believe we get the answer to the question, what are you looking for? The account begins with Jesus washing the disciples' feet and then enters into an extended monologue, Jesus leaving instructions with these disciples with whom he will not be present. And it culminates in a prayer that he prays for himself and those disciples. There's a very clear theme that emerges in these pages and pages of monologue. As I have washed your feet, so you should wash each other's. Love one another. Love one another as I have loved you. 
People will know you are my disciples by how you love one another. This command I give to you, that you love one another. And in his prayer, Jesus says, protect those you have given me that they may be one. That they may be one as we are one, I in them and you and me, that they may be made perfect in unity. What are you looking for? Jesus asks. And Andrew and his companion don't really know. They just want to be closer to Jesus. But Jesus knows what they need. And before he leaves them, he makes sure they receive it. Jesus gives them the gift of each other, the gift of community. What are you looking for? You may not know either. And like humans before you, you may have been drawn to this church by a charismatic individual, only to find that the gift Jesus is offering is community. But have we found it? Especially in the wake of COVID, I think many of us are still feeling deeply lonely. We come to church and we see who is not here. We remember what we used to do together that we cannot do in the same way. The community we first encountered at church feels different or we're unsure how to connect to new people, or we're grieving friends who have died or moved away or who cannot yet come in person. What do we do with this disconnect? We are here. We believe that Jesus has invited us into this community, but we still feel disconnected. Community is not something that happens automatically just because we sit in pews in the same sanctuary each Sunday. It's not something the staff can make happen by planning the right programs or offering the right trainings. It's not something the leaders of the church can achieve by making everyone happy. It's something that we all create together. So how do we do it? How do we create community in and through this church? The answer is different for each of us. We all have different styles and we land different places on that introvert to extrovert spectrum. But there are some stages that I think most of us will go through. And I'm gonna call them introduction, investment, and intimacy. If this is your first week visiting us, or your first month attending, you might be in the stage that I'm calling introduction. This might also apply if you've been a member for years, but attending since COVID has been challenging. You might be back in the introduction stage. In this stage, our goal is to meet people, to become known and to know more people. So fill out your connection card, 
so that we can be in touch with you. And when you fill out a connection card, we will also make a name tag for you. So the next time you visit, you can pick up a name tag and wear that so that we can start to learn each other's names. Stick around for friendship hour. Bring some extra cash on Sundays and put it in that Deacon's Fund offering envelope. Join the choir or the bell choir. Help set up or clean up after friendship hour. Meet a couple of new people each week. If you feel like you're pretty familiar with a lot of the people that you see on Sunday, you might be ready for stage two, investing. So come to adult faith formation hour at nine o'clock or bring your kids to the WOW programs. Try out the Saturday Bible study. They meet twice a month, and starting this Saturday, they're gonna be reading the book of Acts, specifically to look at what community looks like in the early church. Fill out a pledge card. Attend an Aging with Attitude event, or the Lenten supper discussions that we're going to begin in February. Volunteer with the youth group or learn how to be a storyteller for the Kids Formation Hour. Now, if you've listened to that list and you think, check, 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 done and done, congratulations. You're ready for the stage of building community that is the most challenging and the most important. I call it intimacy because it has more to do with the quality of relationships that we cultivate than the amount of time or money that we invest. It is those of us who have been here the longest, who have stepped into leadership roles, who are the most comfortable and have the longest memory of the church, who have the most work to do to maintain the church's health and deepen the peace of this community. Now, when I say deepen the peace, I mean something specific. I mean the kind of positive peace that Dr. Martin Luther King spoke about in his letter from a Birmingham jail. Dr. King was writing to the white church leaders of Alabama, and he distinguished between negative peace and positive peace. Negative peace, he said, is the absence of conflict. When these white clergy told civil rights leaders to back off from their public protests because they were asking for too much change too quickly, Dr. King heard in their cries a longing for negative peace. They wanted their community to return to what was comfortable and familiar without the disruption of sit-ins and marches and boycotts. But what Dr. King strove for and called us toward as a nation is positive peace, the presence of justice, the presence of trust, the presence of deep and abiding care for those who are different from us. The journey toward positive peace is rarely comfortable but I believe that a community marked by positive peace is exactly what Christ calls us to. That is the only quality of community that meets those deep spiritual needs 
So what does this intimacy stage of community building look like? Mostly, I think, it involves paying attention because community is not created when we are on autopilot, doing only what feels natural or familiar. Community is born out of paying attention to each other and to our own habits. So, do we focus on relationships with the people we have known the longest? Or do we continue to invite newcomers into circles of friendship and leadership, believing that Christ has invited them to this community, that they are valuable members of it? Do we resist changes that feel unfamiliar? Or do we welcome new ideas and fresh leadership with faith that the Spirit of God is moving in our midst? Do we complain to each other about decisions that we don't understand or that we disagree with? Or do we choose to trust our leaders enough to bring our concerns to them directly with kindness, to love as we have been loved? What are you looking for? You might have come here because of a dynamic preacher or a charismatic personality. We've definitely had a lot of those over the decades. But what you will find is that just with those earliest followers of Jesus, the real gift we discover in this community is each other. In the UCC, we believe that it is in community with people different from ourselves that we encounter Jesus. Every Sunday, we reaffirm that all are welcome, not only because we are committed to hospitality, but also because we believe that we are more faithful, more Christ-like, and more able to reflect God's love when we continue to expand our comfort zone to include people we haven't known how to welcome in the past. It is this kind of expansive, ever-changing community that allows us to grow into the body of Christ. It is in this kind of community that we are able to share God's love with the world, creating justice and joy. Amen.